The Horse Race is brought to you by Benchmark Strategies. Benchmark is setting a new standard as Boston's fastest growing public affairs consulting firm. To know more, connect with Benchmark on Twitter at Benchmark Boston. Today on The Horse Race, work from home is here to stay, even as pandemic worries subside. And later, it's caucus season in Massachusetts. We unpack what that means for candidates across the state. It's Thursday, March 9th. Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, here with Jennifer Smith and Lisa Kaczynski, and we are marking the anniversary today. It's the two-year anniversary of Governor Charlie Baker declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts in response to the growing threat of COVID-19. That declaration was on a Tuesday and the beginning of what became a cascading shutdown of pretty much everything in Massachusetts, or it sure felt like that at the time. Before that week, the clouds had been sort of slowly gathering, but then between Tuesday and that Saturday, everything had just shut down. So we wanted to take a moment here at the beginning and just talk a little bit about what it was kind of like for each one of us at that time. What are some of the things that we remember? So Jen and Lisa, what was that week like for each of you? Well, it was a strange period of two weeks of feeling whiplash in a very extreme way. Uh, My partner had just celebrated a significant birthday. We had had a ton of people gathered at the Hawthorne. You know, it was still at the time where we were bumping elbows as though that would leave enough distance between you and someone else to not catch this very strange respiratory illness. And then I went into law school We learned how to do remote school, quote unquote, just in case we have to take a few weeks off. And uh, we all went home and immediately got an email saying, "Uh, there's there's no school. school. School is not a physical place anymore. School is a state of being. And and really just kind of from there, it was it was me coming to terms over the next week with uh, my dining room suddenly being my workspace, and everything else to me. It was, a, it was a very strange, very strange week. So many of the things that used to be places have now become just states of mind, like the pod bunker, for instance, just a state of mind. Yeah, the pod bunker is a lifestyle. That I've still never been in because I didn't exist oh. at the horse race back then. So oh my, my time period back then started, the way that I always started was the Thursday before the week that everything shut down or before the state of emergency was the day that Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the presidential campaign. So yeah, exactly. Jen's doing mind blown signs over here on on our little (laughs) Zoom. And that's exactly what it was. So I was on a street in Cambridge with the entire like Boston area press corps, Massachusetts press corps, New Hampshire press corps, the national press corps that was following her in a ring of reporters, like four to six rows deep, like absolute crush, watching Elizabeth Warren walk out of her house with her husband and her dog and say that she was ending her presidential campaign. That weekend, I went home to upstate New York for a friend's bachelorette party for a wedding that I still have not been to two years later, came back and that week, all the dominoes fell, the state of emergency, the cancellations, everything. And by that Friday, my editor, I was still at the Boston Herald at that time. He was like, yeah, maybe like 
take your monitor and your laptop and like kind of prepare to work from home for like a couple weeks or something like you know and I was like cool that's fine because I don't have to go down to the Braintree office so like that saves me some driving I'm closer to Boston that way and then we never went back and now I work at Politico and I'm still working remote. That is kind of amazing how common the belief was back then that everything would be back in a couple of weeks or at most like the real doomsday people were like maybe it's going to be like a few months, maybe a few months, maybe a little bit more, but nobody foresaw what was coming. But it was kind of the same thing for us, everybody taking, you know, what they need, taking it home for what they thought was going to be just a few weeks. I was digging through my email inbox and outbox and found, for instance, I told everybody to take the beer and wine that was left over from the horse race live event that had actually just been the week before. So that's just a kind of a funny little thing that happened that week. But then for me, the office closed down on Friday and on Saturday I had COVID. So that's how I remember this week. Thank goodness. And I still do thank goodness that I didn't do the podcast that week because that Sunday had actually been International Women's Day. Um, So thank goodness the timing worked out. I didn't happen to do the pod. So I wasn't sitting in our little tiny bunker with guests and the other hosts. But that's how the week went down for me. That would have been extremely anti-feminist if you had given all of the women on your podcast COVID on International Women's Week. I have absolutely no rejoinder to that. I just accept the guilt of what would have happened in the parallel universe. Which we dodged, fortunately. But it has been two years since then. We are still in the pod bunker state of mind, though not the pod bunker itself. So what are we gathered for today? Well, first, we're going to talk a little bit about the caucus process, which is very underway here in Massachusetts. For that, we have a true expert in the matter, Bay State Banner editor Yawu Miller, here to talk about what's been going on so far, and then take a look back at some of the ways the caucuses have unfolded in years past. And then we're going to be talking about whether that culture of work from home that first developed in that week we just talked about and has persisted to this day is going to continue and what that could mean for the places we all used to call the office. So should we saddle up and get started? Let's go. We're coming to the end of caucus season in Massachusetts, and it's been a wild Zoom and in-person and hybrid ride. Candidates for statewide office have been reaching out to party insiders across the state in hopes of making valuable and influential connections to better their chances at the convention to get on the primary ballot. We'll be joined in a minute by Yawu Miller, who covered recent caucus action for the Bay State Banner in Boston. But before we dive in with him, let's talk about the caucuses a little more broadly. Jen, can you break down what the caucuses are exactly and why they're so important? Sure. I'll try and keep this high level a bit because we are going to get into some great nitty gritty in a second. But these are essentially local meetings where people gather to select delegates who will then go to the party convention and vote for the candidates. So the actual caucus process is broken into towns and cities in Massachusetts and the rules differ by party. On the Democratic side in Massachusetts, towns get one caucus, cities get a caucus per ward. So there's a little bit more of a breakdown. And each one of those caucuses gets allocated at least one delegate, and it can be many, many more than one. And those delegates get sent to the party convention to pick the party candidate. So the description I tend to like and is often used is the caucuses are kind of the first few dominoes that start to fall in the candidate selection process. And now we turn to Bay State Banner editor Yawu Miller for more on state caucuses. Yawu, thank you so much for joining us again here on the horse race. 
Thanks for having me. So you mentioned in your article that you're paying close attention to Boston's Ward 18. What's important to know about that one specifically? Well, first of all, they have the most delegates sent to the convention of any ward. They've got, uh, I believe, 54 delegates and then eight alternates, um, which is a huge block. Um, it's also significant because for at least 20 years, uh, Tom Menino, that was his home caucus, and he controlled it. So, you know, at the very least, he had a block of 63 votes or 62 votes um, that he could bring to the convention, which is a great bargaining tool with anybody in state office, whether it's an auditor, um, whether it's uh, the governor or, you know, secretary of state, um, you know, just being able to, to, so he also early in his career as mayor um, back in 1993, um, stop me if I'm getting into too much detail, but he um, he he basically tried to take over every caucus in the city with varying degrees of success, which is to say that most of the caucuses in Boston for the last, uh, you know, in that 20 year period of Mino were run by city workers who uh, the perception was that they were beholden to him. And I mean, there were some cracks in that, but basically what would happen is if you were a delegate and you thought, and maybe a city worker, and you thought you didn't have to vote the way the mayor told you to vote in the Democratic caucus, like, you know, you wanted to endorse Deval Patrick for governor instead of Tom Riley, who, who Menino was supporting, um, he, you would hear from, uh, from somebody I won't name names, but there were people in, in on the floor of the convention or in the Boston section where all the Boston delegates were who would just kind of keep an eagle eye on how people voted. They'd stop the process if you voted the wrong way. And then they'd go over and have a conversation with you. And you as a city worker would know that uh, your promotions and your, you know, a lot, you had a lot at stake, um, you know, like, because the you know pe the political directors under Menino like knew who was who and who voted who was naughty who was nice. Menino was was famous for reviewing every promotion. Like anybody in City Hall who wanted a promotion, like he brought home a stack, would go through them. Um, he had a memory. He had and he was Italian American, but he had an Irish memory. Um, so that was the system before. But things have changed since those days, haven't they? Absolutely. Um, first, well, most recently what happened was in 2019, uh, a slate of progressives took over the caucus from a group of city workers who were sort of, you know, Menino holdovers. Um, and, you know, the, the district has been changing demographically for decades. It's now predominantly Black, predominantly Latino, uh, predominantly people of color. Um, with a lot of uh, uh, Caribbean people, a lot of Haitian Americans, um, a lot of African Americans, where it's where a lot of Black city workers um, live, even in Reedville, which is you know a, a traditionally um, conservative, predominantly white area. That's now no longer predominantly white. Fairmount is no longer predominantly white. The high voting precincts um, have have changed, um, and you know now you have. Uh, Ayanna Presley lives there, our, our U.S. representative our, in Congress. Um, uh, Sheriff Steve Tompkins lives there. Uh, so you have a lot of, uh, and, you know, um, Michelle Wu, who's mayor, is a resident of Ward 18 as well in the Rosendale section. So that ward has flipped. And what they've done is they've made it more inclusive. 
um, which is to say that you know they did not have a slate before um, the voting on 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 um, on Saturday. Nobody told anybody who to vote for. They based, I mean, they may have had conversations. Say, hey, I'm supporting this person, or you know, could you please support this person? But I asked Mayor Wu if she basically asked her if she was controlling any slates. I asked her if she had run any slates in any ward committees, and she said no. She said that they did her her political organization did a training um, for anybody who wants to be involved in the caucus process, just how to get involved. There were no directions from the top, uh, so um, it seems like you know people are going to be voting. You know, in, in you know, I mean, there may be a lot of support for Sonia Chang Diaz, and if you're in Sonia Chang Diaz, like if you're if you're supporting her, um, you know, you're not going to get it's not going to jeopardize your job status at City Hall. Now there are some ward wards throughout the city where people are pushing slates, and oftentimes elected officials push slates. Um, in Ward Three, Aaron Mikowitz is uh, you know basically. Um, has a slate of delegates who are who he's you know running, so it gives him some power like in uh, in the state convention with uh, constitutional officers or some anybody who wants to run for senate, anybody who wants to hold statewide office, but um, you know on the whole I think you're go you're going to see the potential for more progressive support for candidates um, for these uh, these uh, constitutional offices governor lieutenant governor um, secretary of state. Which is contested, um, uh, and then treasurer is. I don't think anybody's running treasurer, and then auditor, which is I think now a three or four way race on the Democratic side. So it's going to be really interesting to see. It's going to make the convention, I think, the Democratic state convention, way more interesting. So there are obviously a lot of changing dynamics that you just discussed. One thing that was also a factor this year was COVID. A lot of these caucuses were either hybrid or fully virtual. Did Was that a factor at all? What it does is it gives the uh, candidates for statewide office way more potential to be in many places at once. So we had um, in Ward 18, I say we, I'm not a resident of Ward 18, I don't vote there, but um, uh, People were were phoning in or, or zooming in, I should say. Um, so you know, uh, Mara Healy zoomed in, um, as did uh, Andrea uh, Campbell zoomed in. Um, people are running statewide. You know, when you ask people, and many of the people who were there were also joining caucuses via Zoom, so they were hitting in one day. There were you know many of them were hitting as many as twenty caucuses. Because they were, because of their ability to zoom, they'd be in person in like three or four. Many of the caucuses did zoom only and not in person. And uh, Ward 18, like several other caucuses in Boston, were hybrid. What does that do the to the dynamics? Obviously, you know, I've I've covered caucuses in the past, and and a big part of it pre-COVID is sort of you know, people are pulling each other over into corners and chatting and you're making a case to the entire caucus, but also kind of trying to do a little bit of finagling. So what's the experience like of a candidate kind of zooming in and then being followed immediately by someone else as that candidate goes and zooms off to 19 other caucuses in a day? Well, um, that candidate will oftentimes have surrogates in the room who are doing the 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 uh the schmoozing and you know if you're if you're wise and you're fortunate you have a a, a, a surrogate who's from that specific caucus 
Um, that was certainly happening. I had a long conversation with Chris Dempsey before I realized he wasn't Chris Dempsey. He had a mask, he had dark hair, he was tall and thin, but he was not Chris Dempsey. So um, I think and he didn't correct me either, you know, when I, so when, you know, and throughout the whole conversation, I just happened to see his name tag. So a lot of people, you know, may be having conversations with people who they think are statewide candidates who actually aren't. So, um, I, but I think, I just wonder what does it do to the candidates? Because it must be exhausting to, you know, give the same speech over and over again by a Zoom in person and probably lose track of where you are and who you're talking to mid speech, you might forget, you know, where you're at. So um, yeah, just, I wonder what it does to the candidates to all of a sudden have like that level of work because they're doing it in their car as they're zooming from one or driving carefully from one caucus to the next, you know, um, they don't have downtime, I imagine, it must be maddening. You've attended a lot of these caucuses. Describe the actual atmosphere in the room. So we kind of know like what the political purpose of it is, but what is it actually like, you know, as the caucus goers are gathering and choosing their delegates? Um, you know, I mean, people were really happy to be in person in Ward 18. Uh, generally, that there's a, a long period where um, people are entering the, the room and it's usually an hour and you know it went over schedule like you know it just you know continue to happen so you'll see a city councilor with uh, who's holding a sheet of papers to get collection you know collect signatures for uh, a constitutional office um you know candidate uh you'll see the candidates themselves particularly at ward 18 because again it's like so many delegates so many elected officials live there um that, uh, you know, the, you, so you, you did see a lot of candidates. Uh, Tanisha Sullivan was there. Um, she's running for Secretary of State, um, you know, and again, other people zoomed in. And then both candidates for district attorney, uh, Ricardo Arroyo, who lives in Ward 18, grew up there, and Kevin Hayden, who lives in, uh, he lives in Rosendale, but he doesn't live in the Ward 18 section of Rosendale. Um, both of them were there and both of them gave speeches and then, you know, people who aren't running for office give speeches. All that happens before people actually vote for delegates. Um, I did not stay around to see it, but I mean, in Ward 18 in the past, it was just like, you know, everybody who supports the slate say hi and people raise their hands and it's over like in 30 seconds. You know, this, you know, I, you know, if, if they had more people in Ward 18, which I don't, which I don't believe they did, then they'd have, you know, people might, you know, you know, do it might be more time to vote. But I think I imagine it was over pretty quickly. So one thing that we touched on at the start of this was just how skewed some of the delegate counts can be in between wards. So if you don't necessarily have slates operating in Ward 18, even if they, you know, exist in in other places, what have you been seeing about who's actually showing up? Is it the same people that that often have before looking to be delegates? Or has there not just been kind of diversity in in caucus goers and caucus members, but also just generally new faces to the political process? Like, to what extent have people been shut out and are not currently versus how much of it was outreach? Um, in Ward 18, there were there were consistent um, efforts over the years, over the decades. I, you know, I, I remember uh, an article in the banner, and as I see it in my mind's eye, there's a black and white photograph. So... Um, of a couple of people who tried to get seated as delegates and couldn't um, in the Menino years. Um, so uh, 
it has, you know, it, it, I, you know, it's definitely become more open. Uh, you know, Ward 20, which is West Roxbury, um, has traditionally been a conservative ward. Um, people there have voted conservatively, but the dynamics and the demographics in West Roxbury have changed such that um, progressive Massachusetts slash West, uh, I'm sorry, progressive West Roxbury slash Rosendale organization that, that organizes in, in, in both those neighborhoods, they asked for, um, you know, I think 15 seats. They had nearly half the seats on the ward committee um, and you know the 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 head of the ward, who's the longtime head of the ward committee, said, "Sure, you know, like they gave him 15." So it was, again, like ha you know, nearly half the delegates um, are from a progressive organization that didn't exist 10 years ago, so or even five years ago. So um, you know, it's definitely um, a feeling of more openness in most wards. I think in Ward Nine, I heard. Um, that you know, there's a slate, and that um, people may, might have a hard time getting on. Um, and uh, you know, I think again in Ward Three, you know, it it, it seems like uh, most of the seats are controlled by one state rep, one powerful state rep. And so candidates who are zooming around or traveling around to all of these caucuses, a lot of the times they have just a minute or two to make their pitches. I probably have more Haley and Sonia Chang Diaz as memorized at this point from the ones that I've zoomed into. But, you know, in this short amount of time that they have, is there anything that's stood out to you so far in either the governor candidates or on down the ballot in their pitches? No, not really. Um, uh, um... Yeah, you know, I didn't really pay close enough attention to the pitches. I record them on Zoom and then, you know, and then, I mean, on uh, on Otter, and then I look at the transcription. So, and I'm just looking for one or two sentences, like they kind of, like, you know, a lot of it is just congratulatory stuff, like, thank you for being out here and doing what you do. You guys are the grassroots of democracy, blah, 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 you know, and vote for me. So, you know, between those two things, you're looking for something for, for like a few sentences that just kind of describe anything. But I mean, you're not hearing, he I mean, I think uh, Maura Healy stressed her progressive credentials, um, you know, probably tailoring that message to, you know, what has become one of the more, one of the most progressive uh, word committees in the, uh, in the state. So, or in, certainly in Boston. So, um, uh, other than that, I, yeah, you don't really notice much of what they're saying. So, so since a lot of these speeches, as you mentioned, are kind of, you know, they're, they're rote, they're short, they're hitting the things that one would expect a candidate running for office to hit in that kind of small amount of time. Uh, is there the sense that there's still kind of a, a predetermined outcome? You know, how much opportunity is there for a real surprise in Ward 18, even with more than 50 delegate spots up in the air? I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think, I think with, again, there's more progressive people uh, in, on these who uh, are working as delegates or serving as delegates. Uh, there are more progressive slots in these ward committees. Um, it's more open. I think that, um, you know, statewide, People are looking at Mara Healy, and certainly the polls seem to show her as a frontrunner. Um, Sonia Chang Diaz could get a good boost of uh, candidates from Boston, um, 
you know, uh, the progress white progressives in Boston have never been more involved in in uh, in ward committees is you know in in being becoming delegates in being um, you know going to the state convention. I think you're going to you know we're seeing uh, that activity peaking. Um, it's you know started with, with uh, a lot of it started with the creation of progressive you know JP progressives and progressive. Um, West Roxbury and Rosendale, groups like that who pushed turnout for Ayanna Presley's election in 2018, as well as Rachel Rollins and Nika Elgardo in that same year. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of progressive activity. Rosendale, Jamaica Plain, you know, even West Roxbury have become way more progressive and have driven the outcomes in races. Um, they were, you know, a decisive factor for Rachel Rollins. They were um, you know, turned out really progressive for Michelle Wu, who lives in Rosendale. A lot of people have said there's a very politically astute move moving to a neighborhood that had, you know, that doesn't have a lot of political representation. But at the same time, it's like, you know, dead center in like progressive white Boston. So, um, you know, you, you, we might see a lot of, uh, act, of, of, of push from those communities for more progressive candidates in these congressional offices. So the caucuses are coming to a close this weekend. The convention isn't until June. What happens in the interim? What's next for these candidates running for statewide office and for these delegates? Uh, they're raising a lot of money. They need to be raising a lot of money. Um, uh, Andrea Campbell pulled in, I think, $330,000 in February, which is you know pretty respectable. Um, they all need to be raising money like that uh, um, to, to, you know, to run uh, effectively statewide. Although it's interesting, see, you know, it's, you know, people are used to doing campaigns by Zoom, and I think there's going to be a lot more in-person interaction in the coming months. Uh, you know, this month, like you'll probably see candidates at St. Patrick's Day parades uh, across Massachusetts. Um, so a lot more in-person campaigning than what we've become used to in the last couple of years. Um, I'm certainly excited to get out to, to be able to be outside and see people campaigning and, um, you know, li listen to them, get a sense of who they are, that a lot of, uh, you know, democratic activists are going to be paying much closer attention to these candidates. Now it feels a little more real. This is the first sprint in the race for, um, for, uh, November. Well, there's a lot more that we could talk about, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Yamu Miller from the Bay State Banner, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Lisa. Mask mandates are officially disappearing in all 50 states. Restaurants are filling back up, as are concert venues, museums, gyms, and all kinds of other indoor spaces. But even as COVID infection rates plateau and pandemic-related anxieties loosen their grip a bit, one environment remains largely free of bodies, and that's corporate offices. Steve, you wrote about this phenomenon for Commonwealth and how Boston's downtown is at risk with workers staying remote. So just how empty is downtown Boston? Well, there's certain groups and certain people that are that are still coming in large numbers. I mean, you think, for instance, college students, you think, you know, tourists are coming back by many measures. But the group that hasn't really come back that I was focusing on in this piece is office workers, you know, and there's a couple different statistics that a Boston Globe article mentioned to kind of get at that. One was MBTA ridership, which is depending on the line, somewhere between a third and half of what it was two years ago. 
Um, foot traffic is another one. And then one that I thought was really interesting was from a security office security company that was literally like card swipes. In other words, getting into your building. And that one at the time that article was written a couple of weeks ago was one seventh of what it was pre-pandemic. So we're really talking about potentially a very significant portion of the workforce that's still missing at this point. So I guess the question then that raises raises its head as it did over the summer and still does now is why? Why look at uh, downtown workforces kind of as a collective and their impact? Yeah, I mean, part of it is just the is the the multiplier effect that missing workers have. In other words, one missing worker for one day that that worker is missing for twenty percent of their work week. So two days, forty percent, and so forth and so on. And that that is less spending that that person is doing downtown and less economic impact that they're having, which then impacts other potential jobs that that are are being done downtown. And then it also impacts how many other office workers want to come in, in the sense that if none of your peers or coworkers or friends are coming in, then why would you come in? You know, if there's not kind of the assumption that you're already going to be in, are you really going to go downtown to meet somebody for lunch? Are you going to go downtown for an event that you in former times you would have gone to? But now it's like, am I really going to go all the way down there just for that one hour, like information session after work? So that's where, you know, it kind of becomes a compounding problem. One thing that you pointed out in your article for Commonwealth that I thought was was particularly cogent is that we're not necessarily seeing these absences for the same reasons that we did mid-pandemic, where it was for safety concerns. Now it seems to be about kind of work, travel, life balance itself. Yeah, that's that's right on right on the nose. It, it hasn't really been true for a while now that people didn't feel comfortable coming in more than they're coming in now. You know, but the thing that's happened is that people have grown to like some amount of remote work and expect some amount of remote work and see the prospect of coming in every single day as being a departure from what's now normal. In other words, people talk about going back to normal, but what it really seems like workers are telling us now in surveys is that this is normal. This is the normal that we now, and, and I should note, I'm speaking specifically about remote workers, but this is the normal that remote workers now expect. Um, and going back in five days a week would, would be a departure from that. Routines have been built up around being home at least some portion of the time. The other thing that was notable is that the articles and analyses that talk about you know reopening the office or workers are coming back mostly refers to hybrid you know, hybrid work, in other words, coming in two or three days a week, but not every single day. So that squares with surveys that say that basically show that for workers where work can be done at home, they're doing it. It does kind of leave us with this question of, of a sticky framework. As we as we talk about this subject, as we talk about the implication of what happens if an entire work sector suddenly changes its habits, uh, we do have to kind of root it in what we saw before. So you know, the thing that keeps kicking around in my head is, is it fair to say that because downtown businesses have relied on essentially a captive workforce of, of consumers, that the result of trying to regain that batch of consumers might actually be discouraging more worker freedom? Um, whereas what we've talked about over the summer and what I think you saw uh, in your reporting for this and reviewing the surveys is that a lot of businesses are now changing the way that they define jobs to actually include more of that work from home remote possibility. So are we are we viewing this as an opportunity to not just re-envision work, but also maybe re-envision downtown? 
Yeah, that's the big question. And, you know, I got, as as always, you know, lots of very well-informed, well-argued and reasoned social media responses to this, which basically were like, you're saying downtown's doomed. And that's not really the point. Like, the point is just that it's not going to be the same. You know, it's not going to be where you've got the same set of people coming in for the same set of reasons, you know, but maybe it is a, re- a time to re-envision. You know, we've heard a lot about lab conversions for instance, that's something which we heard a lot about um, on Mass Reboot uh, when we did that last summer. Um, there's other advocates and analyses that are looking at the possibility of housing, certainly something we need more of in the Boston region. We also have heard on previous episodes that it's not as necessarily simple to convert an office building to, a, to housing, but perhaps now's the time when something like that could become worthwhile. So definitely an opportunity to think about what downtown is. And of course, the question about conversions over to housing or something like that are very much contingent on what's my biggest mystery of late, at least in Boston, which is what is the actual plan for housing? It's not just that we're kind of coming out of this very intense restrictive period of the pandemic, but we're also in a new mayoral administration, we're looking at new governance, not just in Boston, but in cities across across the state. So if there are shifts in the understanding of what the need and plan is for different types of housing, that might then have an impact on whether or not offices suddenly look more possible as, as locations than they might have before. I think one other thing that I wanted to, to ask about is... Does this, when we're talking about downtown changing, also mean kind of spreading out the idea of downtowns? Uh, Do you spread commercial activity that's usually just centered in the middle of the city to other communities, to suburbs, to more rural areas. Yeah, that that I think is also kind of the TBD, you know, and, and certainly the opportunity seems great for someone to capture the energy that now exists elsewhere, um, you know, but the, the risk is also great for downtown to try to figure out sort of what, what happens next. I've been downtown somewhat regularly recently. I know others, Libby, you're down there right now. And Jen, you've been down there probably more than I have recently. But it does just feel empty in a lot of ways. You know, my window faces another building. And I, I all day yesterday saw maybe one or two people in the entire 15 or 20 floors that I can kind of see from my window. So um, whereas before they were all crowded and there were cute, you know, areas of cubicles and people coming in and out. And now it's just completely vacant. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to it. But um, I was just trying to show that that uh, workers are now staying home because they want to and not because they don't feel comfortable going to their office or their office is closed. You know, that's just not the situation for most people anymore. Yeah. And dealing with the question about what do you do if, for instance, there is a commercial or retail consequence of fewer people physically being there in person to provide foot traffic, uh, the thing that this raised for me was the back and forth in recent months over over ghost storefronts downtown where spaces that used to be intended for kind of walk-in, walk-out traffic are being occupied now by more storage and delivery services. So you end up with this kind of confusing question of, is the better use for a vacant downtown retail space keeping it vacant until a foot traffic-based business can move in or swap over to a primarily delivery storage model. So it's not just a question about what we do with offices, but also what do we do with the places that a lack of office workers might kind of leave in the lurch? 
Yeah, that's that is one really interesting one. Other ones that we've seen mentioned have been things like you know using events or converting some space to event space to try to draw people in. We've seen uh, people talk about the need or emphasis to add childcare facilities. Certainly something that's in short supply, um, and just a lot of kind of thinking about what to do not just with the office space above, but with the first floor retail space that occupies you know ground level on a lot of these buildings if there aren't as many people walking by. So just a ton to consider a ton to kind of keep our eyes on as time goes on. Um, but for now, we have to leave it there because we have some very important trivia to talk about. And that brings us to our favorite segment of the week. And based on millions of listener interviews, your favorite segment also, and that is trivia. We have another set of responses from the question, what image, GIF, or other Massachusetts icon should go on the new flag of the Commonwealth? And of course, as you often do on Twitter, we said wrong answers only. So Jen, what were some of the ones that stuck out to you? We've got some good ones here. We do. Uh, you gotta love the outline, the silhouette of Kitar Bear as just a nice bit of iconography. You have the extremely excellent Martin Walsh press conference where just two of the most Boston dudes you've ever seen in your life wandered in in the background. Uh, and then, uh, Steve, you did correctly point out that there's a kind of iconic picture involving a toilet. That's right. We've got, of course, the, the space saver toilet, the toilet in a parking space in a snowstorm. That's got to be somewhere on there. Also, an extremely Boston image of a truck stuck under a bridge on Storrow Drive. I think that's certainly one as well. So um, we're going to consult with our sprawling arts department and our graphic design department and see if we can design a Massachusetts flag <laughs> based on this imagery. No promises. In fact, maybe a listener should do it instead since <laughs> let's face it we're more into the audio arts than the visual um, but seriously thank you for all of your responses they were all funny they were all clever they absolutely were but that is all the time we have for today i'm jennifer smith here with steve Kazella and lisa kashinsky don't forget to leave us a review wherever you're hearing us now subscribe to lisa's massachusetts politico playbook and ping the massink polling group for polls thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week <laughs> <laughs>